we are uncertain things. And we have Batya Ungar Sargon joining us with her. Hey, once again, you're joining us right before your new book is about to be published. Hey. Um, and if by right before, you mean like six months before, which was actually how soon before my first book you had me on, the first time I did Uncertain Things was the first interview I did about Bad News, my first book. And it was the, it's so funny because um, it felt very raw to me because it was the first time I went back then from talking about being interviewed about Jewish issues to being interviewed about my book, which was about the media. And um, Adam always jokes that my brain is like a car and there are only four seats in it. And I can only be interested in four things at a time. And then I get super obsessed with them, which is true. But it's funny that now we're talking because my next book is actually about class. And I was telling somebody the other day, it's like I fought so hard to get out of like the Jewish journalism ghetto and to be able to talk about things that were not just Jewish. But now, of course, with this news and this war breaking out, like I'm so concerned by it. And I'm thinking about it so much that I basically forgot that I had written this book that's coming out in April. <laughs> All of which is to say thank you so much for having me. I'm so <laughs> excited to be back with you guys. I love this podcast. I listen to it all the time and I love you both. I think, the, I think it's exciting because because we are not probably going to talk about your book at all this time. Right. Uh, we'll have to, excuse, we'll we'll have have to be continued. Again. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I, I do want to ask... Back to the Jewish ghetto. Back to the Jewish ghetto. I do want to ask a question first to kind of kick us off because as listeners may may know if they, they listened to the previous episode, um, the last episode was a conversation between Adam and technically me, and Eli Lake. Um, and that was ver- fairly soon after the news of the Hamas attack. And it was a very raw uh, conversation. Uh, And I think the aim of that conversation was catharsis for people that were hurt and angry. That was the aim of that conversation, its purpose. I kind of want to start first just understanding both where you are at in your Emotional trajectory, but also the your analytical trajectory, because um, I'm going to I have a sense of where Adam was. So I, c- I could like to know where he's at now. And but I'd like to know to you how how your feelings and thoughts have evolved over the past. What is it? Week and a half. How long has it been? Week? You, you mean within the range of the past week or how did this week change us and how we've changed in the week at all? I'm well, I want to know where you're at emotionally because I want to be able to right. place you all. Okay. In in terms of what this conversation is going to be, because I I, will, I need to understand, like, I guess from Adam as Israeli, Batya as Jewish American, what you're feeling and what you think needs to be said right now, because I want that to frame for my understanding how this conversation is going to go, if that makes sense. So I'll just start because my, my answer is quick. I see my my role and my my the best use of my bandwidth ever since the October 7th pogrom to be remembering things, remembering the details of what happened, remembering how people responded immediately to what happened, remembering remembering how people shift their perspective on things in response to what happened. And I see this project of memory to be more than my passion for history, but rather as a moral and strategic imperative. And that's where I am. Whatever rage may underlie or accompany said effort is, you know, ancillary. 
But my focus is I need to remember, record, and clarify everything that's happening and how people respond to it. Okay, gotcha. Um, wait, that's so interesting. <laughs> Can you say more about that? <laughs> that's really like about that dichotomy and, and the interplay between the two and how it's showing up and how you're controlling it and controlling for it. Dichotomy between the, the emotional and the, and the historical. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, no, the, the emotional is me personally not feeling entitled to decrease my rage. Mm, okay. And partly that is related to my memory efforts because rage for me is a fuel and a focusing drug. But, but the purpose of it is not to be enraged because I don't want my rage to inform my actual intellectual analysis or to be to lead me down darker paths i just but i do want it to underwrite my more important efforts which is taking names <laughs> uh-huh you're so you're standing in judgment is what so you're there's saying. a real intersection there between the emotional and the historical mhm but again, which is more than historical for me now, I do see it as a moral and a strategic yeah. imperative. I think being, there's the moral, which comes to what happened to the people and memorializing, which is part of the effort. And it's something that Vanessa and I sometimes talk about, this, this general human project of memorializing and how to do it right and why are we doing this. But there's also the strategic dimension, which is we, this is a clarifying moment regarding who thinks what truly about where they are in the world and what kind of politics they're trying to enforce, actuate. And I think when you have a faction that sees a Holocaust and responds by obfuscation, equivocation at best, and celebration and glorification at worst, it's clarifying. And it's important to not forget this, not out of spite, but out of self-preservation. So you know who you're dealing with next time around when you're reporting on this, or not just about this, when you're writing about geopolitics, when you're writing about domestic politics, you need to remember where those people's minds are, what their actual moral infrastructure is, and how potentially intention, to say the least, it is with mine. And intention is a very kind word to, to this, but, but I, say, I, I, I don't want to forget this. I don't want to be, to fall prey to my own desire to be nuance and or my capacity to kind of rationalize or understand any and all perspectives, which is something that I do take pride in and I do love doing. But strategically, I need to remember that this is also how I can soften myself and, and, and pretend that I'm having a dialogue with people that are not really having a dialogue with me. Mm. And I'm just, I'm pretending as if I'm having a conversation based on 
the liberal pluralistic assumption of fair-minded discourse, of good faith attempts at enabling a vision of the world, of a shared life that we don't actually share. Mm. And as long as I get seduced by the assumption that we are having the same kind of conversation, all I do is undermine the world that I want to see, which is an actual liberal world. Because I'm giving too much space, too much credence, too much un- unwarranted slack to people who just truly believe, genuinely believe in undermining everything that I care about. Yeah, I think we might, we might get back to this question of who deserves slack and who doesn't. But I want to I wanna let Batya respond to the question first. I, I'm going to respond to it, but um, Vanessa, I'm also very curious what this is like for you, for somebody. Well, why are you hijacking this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm worried about what I'm going to say and I'm pushing uh-huh. it off. Uh-huh. You're deflecting. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am actually, though, very curious. But, so ju- I won't do it the whole time. But Vanessa, I am really curious what it's like to experience this as someone who's sort of adjacent to and surrounded by it, um, but maybe slightly one step removed from it, um, what your experience of this has been for the last two weeks? I think it's it's a question of how much to be open and how much to be closed to what's Mm -hmm. happening with my my friend group right now. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like if I'm, I want to be open and empathetic and supportive, but I know that if I'm too open, I'm going to get swallowed up by all of the emotions that they're feeling. Um, and I want to main, not just like for emotional protection, but I want to maintain some some level of, if I can, in, in intellectual clarity, which for me, I find, for me personally, I find hard, it's hard for me to maintain when feeling like strong feelings of, of, of rage or whatever it might be. Um, so... I, I think it's been it's been a balancing act of trying to be there and be aware of what's happening and not be not be too ignorant but at the same time not be sucked into too much. I feel like I have a little bit of worry for my friends right now that they they know too much and they're they're not necessarily protecting themselves and I'm trying to protect myself so that hopefully I can still be supportive of of what they're going through if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's hard to think of this as a journey because every day I learn something worse than I heard the day before. And the day has not gone by that I have not wept, screamed in rage. And I also find it very hard not to see the other side of things. And so I'm sort of... And in this case, that's like it's you know, I'm not a person like who's by nature a morally certain person. But this has very much, I think this has changed like aspects of my personality in a big way that I was surprised by. Like, like what? Um, Like a certain level of moral certainty that's, I think in the past been sort of hard for me to achieve, maybe even especially on this topic because I have deep, deep connections on both sides of the conflict. I never thought I would be able to kill somebody. And now I think I would. Um, if I met one of these like Hamas people, um, 
I feel like the best way to do it is just to tell you like a few of the things that have happened to me over the last few weeks. So one of them was, I have a very close friend who's a Holocaust survivor. And we've been sort of going through this together. She's been sort of reading all of the reports. And then, you know, we I would see her in shul and synagogue and she would say to me, I read this report, this happened to me. I read that report, that happened to me. Like, and she started telling me stories that she had never told anybody, like for 78 years that were sort of coming up for her for the first time because Hamas had done that to, to these Israelis. And at some point, three days ago, when I heard something I said to her, you know, Toby, I didn't tell her what it was, I, but I said to her, I heard something today that's worse than anything that the I, I've ever read the Nazis doing. And she said to me, yeah, me too, because they didn't see us as human. And at some point to want to cause a certain level of pain, you have to see the person as human. Like when you're thirsty for their pain, that is an acknowledgement of their humanity. Um, but she also, there were stories she told me that were just so incredibly similar. And it's just been, it's, she's in a very emotional state. She's a very strong person. Um, so I think that's been a really big part of it. And I, I do kind of, I think probably a lot of us vacillate between like grief and rage and grief and rage. And then also trying to be like an objective journalist. And I was asked to speak at a rally and I, I didn't think that would be appropriate as a journalist. And I'm sure, Adam, you're going through something very similar, which is like, we can't really say that we're, we, I'm being like totally honest here, but it's like, I don't know if I'm being, if I'm capable of being a good journalist on this. Like, I mean, obviously the entire American media press corps has like, just completely lost it and are completely all in on the bed. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Um, From that point of view, but um, in terms of like what it's, it's not the case that like we are impartial on this, you know? And so I, you know, I said, I'm not going to, I can't speak at this rally. Like that would, I can't go that far. But then I went to the rally and then one of the other speakers started saying things that were actually really upset me, like about Muslims. And I was so glad that I had said no, but also I was so glad to know that, that I have not actually like substantially changed in terms of my own views about how yeah. humans, humans should be. And, you know, so I found out about this. I was in synagogue. Obviously, all of my technology was off. I'm Orthodox. And um, at first, we were all like sort of, I, we didn't really believe it. I mean, there was just a level of denial where the, the reports were trickling in from people who like use tech on Shabbos. And we were sort of like, was that, that can't be re- 40 hostages. That can't be real, right? Like how innocent we were, you know? Um, and I, at some point, I said to, you know, we were sitting around with some women. And I said to them, you know, I, as soon as I turn on my phone, I have three very, very close friends who are Palestinian, one in the West Bank, one in Gaza, and one who lives here. I said, I'm, I'm 100% sure when I turn on my phone after Yantif, after the holiday, I'm going to have messages from them. And I didn't. And I was very surprised. And um, I actually ended up reaching out to them. There, there, the response was just so interesting to me. Like, I think that there's like, it's just like very, I feel very strongly like Adam, what you were saying that there are people now who are like just dead to me, like just 
you're not like, no. But then also I feel really strongly that there are people I love deeply who are very wrong on this issue. And I don't care. I can't, I can't not love them because they are very wrong on this issue. And I'm very surprised at that as well. Like I've never felt so strongly about something, but I've also never felt as strongly that I cannot allow my friendships and my connections with people who in good faith see this in a different way to suffer because I truly believe that you can only convince people with love. And even today they were, you know, I was feeling such disgust with like, Everything we're seeing, the Holocaust denial, the minimization, the, you know, these people denying the report. Baby head counting. Exactly. You know, who are the equivalent of tearing down the signs of the kidnapped children, right? It's the same thing. Like the 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 people, the the journalists, quote unquote, out there on the hunt for Israeli wrongdoing at every level, right? Like the people who are trying to it's just disgusting, right? But I and let's thought, be clear, no, but let's be clear why this is disgusting. It's disgusting. Not because Israel is exempt from scrutiny. Nothing exempts Israel from scrutiny. And I think that the when it comes to the American government, the repeated calls for restraints are good. Those are good calls. This is what an empire needs to do, to say, you have the leash, but still be careful, still follow international law. Fine. I actually don't think that's fine, but we, we, we can talk we, about we, that we, after. We, yeah, we yeah. can talk about this after, yes. And this is this is more a policy question, and I, I think it's a complicated one. What's not complicated is that the journalists, I can't, I, I'm tired of scarecrows, but the, the scumbags who are employed by reputable news organization who... The minute news started coming out about the slaughter in southern Israel, didn't spend a second reflecting on what this might mean and immediately scurried around to find any excuse to flip the moral equation so that Israel is either responsible for the attack or at least they can equivocate that Israel's retaliation for the attack was so much worse that we can excuse ourselves for not feeling bad about the dead Jews two weeks ago. Let's find any flaw, any hole in the reports streaming out of Israel about the magnitude of the savagery that took place there. You said 40 beheaded babies. We only saw pictures of one. And we're not sure if it was beheaded before or after it was burnt. So, you know, basically moral equivalence. Though You said that a woman was raped? I don't know. Only the IDF, the government of Israel, and a few witnesses who seem to be a little angry at Gaza have accounted for the rape. How can I be sure? Oh, you're sending a forensic report about nine women of different ages whose pelvises were broken? How do I know that it's rape? Those people are not dead to me, by the way. They are very much alive. <laughs> as, yeah, the voodoo dolls a in a doll's room. <laughs> that this kind of low-life Holocaust, it's not Holocaust denial. 
It's Holocaust justification. Apology. It's justification. Yeah, they're retrofitting. Yeah, 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 yeah. In, um, in the most yeah. prominent American yeah. media, exists yeah. in the most prominent uh, avenues of American leftist activism. That those people are real. They also exist on the right because that's where some Nazis have always crowded. But those people are real in prominent, reputable institutions. Yeah. And unlike Basia, who's who's having this uh, emotional response and questioning her own uh, ability to be objective, there's no questioning among these people, right? It's, it feels like they are either so committed to the, to the narrative that it doesn't register or, I don't know, like it's, they just, they just feel right. It, see, it seems, at least from my interpretation, it doesn't, I'm not feeling any moral equivalence coming from those types. Yeah. No, because because they are not journalists. That's the uh, Batya and I torture ourselves because we really do care about trying to understand what's going on, and we have. I think we have a lot of cachet of credit when it comes to criticizing fucking Israel. It, it's not. <laughs> we are not Hasbara people. <laughs> The and even today, even now, I think Israel is has a lot of responsibility first for the attack, but also generally Israeli government right now, and there, there's a lot of legitimate criticism to lob at Israel more systemically when it comes to the past 20 years at least. But that is just has nothing to do with it. Because as journalists, we are holding these multiple truths and they're not even intention. They're just the reality of a really morally complex world. But what isn't complex for me and Batya is that the targeted slaughter of civilians is the definition of evil. If evil has a definition, it is that. And any attempt to defend it or to somehow smoothen the edges of the horror or make it something that is justifiable supposedly Morally acceptable yeah. because it is right. in the name of a resistance is reprehensible period well put <laughs> <laughs> i but i do i would i do want to say there are people who are journalists who i disagree with their analysis but i still love and respect and admire many and there are many i want to just give a shout out to two of them Zed Jelani and Lee Fong are two Lee of Fong, the best sure. journalists I know. I don't agree with them on this issue, but I love and respect and admire them because I, I think that they are coming at this from a truly honest place that has simply led them to a different conclusion. Um, and I, I just feel that it is so important to ha- to to maintain these relationships. I mean, I have a, a Palestinian friend who we just call each other and just cry. I mean, there, we just have nothing to say. And at some point he said to me, um, we're both morally outraged at the moral equivalence, but from opposite sides. And we are, and that is true. And there are people who say, who will tweet what he tweets and I feel murderous rage. And then I'll see him tweet out think, I know he wants me to be safe and protected and does not have an anti-Semitic bone in his body and wants all peoples to be equal. And then I don't feel murderous rage. I think, okay, that is another point of view. And I have to, 
I would promote it. I would publish it. But what, where that leaves me is in this quandary, and I'm curious if you guys have this as well, to where when I'm speaking, I feel like I have this choice where I can either give, I can do my best, the grace of God, to give voice to um, the most articulate version of the feelings I'm having and the thoughts I'm having so that the people who agree with me can feel that relief you get when you hear somebody say what you think in the perfect way. But that would involve speaking in a way that betrays my own emotions, or I could try to control my emotions and imagine myself addressing myself to people who disagree with me, who I could potentially convince. And those are two extremely different versions of, I mean, it's the same text, right? It's the same, but it's a very different delivery. There's a different, it's a different um, packaging. And I feel deeply, deeply torn between those two things um, and between which is the like, you know, which is the moral one to do, which is, which is my call, like, which am I being called to do at this moment? It's just very hard to know, especially knowing how much comfort Israelis get when you go on the mainstream media here and you, you make the case that is like so obvious, but somehow so hard for American journalists to wrap their heads around because they're, they've, they're so inculcated in, in woke mind virus that they literally can't tell right from wrong. <laughs> I don't I have to go back a step first of all in crediting people that we often disagree with but are remarkable and I deeply respect one of my favorites in the Middle East context is Arash Azizi oh he's wonderful he is amazing he's wonderful when it comes to the question of a ceasefire I think we, right. <laughs> we greatly disagree, but he is, I trust his analysis, but my. And by the way, are these folks that you, you mentioned, are they Americans or, or Palestinians or Israelis? Like who are, what, what's their. Arash, I think is originally Iranian. I think he's Iranian. Yeah. Um, uh, Zed and Lee are both American. The, in the case. Zed's Muslim. In the case of trusting people. I don't think I have it in me to trust people because I know them. I trust them based on what they're saying and how they reach to a divergent perspective mm -hmm. to, than mine when it comes to Israel. Mm -hmm. With Arash, his view of a ceasefire comes from a deep commitment to democratic liberalism and the minimization of harm to civilians. I disagree with his way to get there. I think his analysis, even by his standards, is flawed. But in everything that he's written and said publicly, I don't know what he feels in his heart, and I don't care, but everything that he has decided to put out publicly clearly shows a consistent commitment to these principles. When the attack on the uh, uh, Alahi Hospital, I hope I pronounced it correctly. Sorry, not the attack. When the explosion in the Alahi Hospital took place, Arash jumped to conclude with some caveats in his writing and his tweeting that Israel was at fault and bought into implicitly the Hamas propaganda about 500 dead and an Israeli airstrike that never happened. 
that probably never happened. But immediately as contradictory reports came out, not only did he rescind his original tweet, he also made sure to say, I was irresponsible to jump to that conclusion. That was my own biases or my own assumption. I respect that so deeply. And I think that is the acknowledgement of I am trying to stand for something. And whether or not I come at it from a Muslim perspective, an Israeli perspective, a Jewish perspective, a Palestinian or Iranian perspective, my core principle is seeing a world that is predominantly pluralistic, democratic, liberal, where civilians have the freedom to live their lives free from tyranny. That's not what I can say about most of the journalists and activists that have been covering this event that I'm critical of. They are not consistently landing at an anti-Israel perspective because of their commitment to a liberal Middle East. They arrive there because their loyalty is to a framework of good and evil, a framework of power that is exclusively, I don't know if you want to call it Marxist, not to offend anybody in the in this conversation, <laughs> but that definitely draws a lot from the Marx, uh, Marxist principle of power differential as A, easily reducible into a simple category of the oppressor and the oppressed, and B, using that as, as the only font to draw moral judgment. And once you buy into this ideology, if you want to call it woke, if you want to call it a, a critical bullshit, post-colonialism, whatever word you want to ascribe to it, once this is how you see the world, you are buying into a Manichaean, good versus evil, David versus Goliath paradigm that has nothing to do with democracy, that has nothing to do with liberalism, and that can, can tolerate the most horrendous atrocities as long as they're done in its name by the right player, by the right party in this equation. I have no respect for that. And I don't think love is the way to bridge that if this is your worldview. This is a philosophy. This is a moral position. And I can respect it as that. This is what you truly believe in. And you've shown me that you truly believe that once you've watched videos of women being dragged to the back of their car, to the back of, of, of a pickup truck, beaten, almost dead, potentially raped. And your logic, having spent years saying believe all women and defending Me Too, critical gender theory, and all this crap, you look at these videos and say, Israel had it coming. This is, you're not dead to me. You are my enemy. Oof. I mean, but Batya was talking about people that she knew and loved before. My, they, my point is my personal empathy doesn't come into this. But even if it is somebody that you knew and loved, and if they said something that you consider abhorrent like that. And I, love doesn't factor into this. This is about how I understand their worldview. This is how I understand them as moral creatures. And let me just be clear. I'm not talking about Palestinians certainly not talking about the citizens of Gaza, who I've said a million times might be the people in the most tragic position in current history. I'm talking about the journalists. I'm talking about the intellectuals. I'm talking about the people who give philosophical cover to a death cult. 
those are the people that are not dead to me, but very much alive. Those are the people I consider my enemies. I can still have conversations with them potentially about other things. I can have coffee with them. Why would that's that's a lot to unpack. You would have coffee, but you would have coffee with somebody who you consider your enemy. Yeah. Why not? They're interesting. Why? Maybe they have insight about other things in the world. Maybe I want to understand them better. Why not have coffee with them? Guys, the next iteration of uncertain things should be called coffee with my enemy. <laughs> just be a dumb getting coffee with each of these, each of these um, uh, deplorables, one after the other. Yeah, but, but that's my point. That I have no. It would do well on I'm social not, media. I am not, not emotionally right reactive to those people. I they they don't offend me emotionally. That's that's the change. I'm offended emotionally when I see people who I I think or assume are either are that are both intelligent and seemingly share my baseline moral assumptions about the world being seduced by terrible ideas especially when I think it's because of some knots that they got stuck on in their own head that they're not willing to critically examine that's the things that's the sort of thing that gets me angry and frustrated but when I see somebody so clearly communicating to me what they believe in, telling me in so many words, I am your enemy, uh, I almost respect that. I can say <laughs> now, okay, now we can have coffee because I know that when it comes to this fundamental civilizational question of how the world should be ordered, what's a good society? We are on the literal opposite. I don't mind having a coffee with a Nazi, with an actual Nazi. They might be really interesting. I might learn things from them. But, but I, I, and I'll have no emotional reaction to it because I, I know who they are. I don't, need to, I, don't, I don't have any strain about thinking, uh, why, why can't I get you to see the world the way I do? I, I know why, because you're a Nazi. It makes it easier for me to have an interesting, cold, intellectual conversation with them over coffee. But they are my enemies. I feel extremely grateful that there are people who I love and respect and admire who are saying things I disagree with so I can hear them. Because if it's only the people who I now consider to be Holocaust deniers, I will become lazy and weak and morally self-righteous and stupid and wrong and unable to convince. And I think every time I see one of their tweets, I think maybe when I tweet something, they're feeling the way I do right now, which is that's not my position, but I love and respect and admire that person who said that. And so I can no longer say like everyone who thinks that position wants all Palestinian civilians to be blown up because I know that Batia thinks this and I know she doesn't think that. And I think that that's... I, I think most of the people on that side are basically worthless and worth writing off, especially the journalists. I literally, like you, Adam, I want to spit when I say that word because they're just so disgusting. It, no matter how much people hate journalists, they don't hate them enough. Like they do, they do not hate them enough. Um, but I still feel that there's, you know, like to save, <laughs> to save a life is to save the world, right? And I know that I feel that I am being saved in my credibility with myself by being able to be exposed to those views and to be humbled by the gap between us and 
Um, and I'm actually relieved that I feel this way because I would have thought to myself like, oh, that like I would have predicted that this was kind of a woke way to think like, oh, I have privilege in this situation, blah, blah. I have to hear from the subaltern, yada, yada. No, I just, it's just, a, I think to me, it's just like, this is what it means to be a good journalist is to be humble about, even when you're the most certain, like find a person you can love and respect and admire who can, who who you can use as a barometer for your own humanity. And I don't know. I maybe an Israeli hearing this would be like, that's so unacceptable and you should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, and no, I, I think I, 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 th- I think there are two different parameters here. As a journalist, I agree with you. And I will, and this is the, I, I, because I, I also respect my craft, unlike the I don't we need to find a better word for them because or at least to separate what we see as journalism and what they do. But it, precisely in order to maintain this distinction between the craft that we see as the role of a of a reporter, of somebody who's trying to encompass the world and perspectives and and, and give, give different ideas their proper, honest voice and hearing. And I think for that craft, for sure, you still need to do this. But that doesn't change my moral perspective about who, who are my enemies. If I, we were writing in 1938, uh, uh, I would still need somebody from Germany to give me the, the Nazi perspective. And I would still... No, and no, I, no. But I we're like agreeing. You feel the way that I'm describing about Arash. Like, you don't agree with him, but you are no, glad... No, no, no. Ar- no, no. But, but, but this is the distinction because Arash is by no means my enemy. I disagree right. with him. right. So we're describing the same thing, yeah. But, but but no, but that distinction, because I'm saying even with with the people I think have crossed that line, I I still want to understand what they're thinking, but I but I have a clear wall about whether or not we're in the same room having the same conversation. But I, I think, want to understand them in the same way that I want to understand Hamas. But with people like Arash and people that I respect, the reason we are having the same conversation is because we do have. It's not because of empathy. I don't know if Arash has any empathy for me. I, mean, I don't know him personally. For me as, as an Israeli, I mean. But I certainly have empathy for Iran. I have a lot of empathy for Palestinians. Um, but the, the terms under which we have this empathy is on a liberal understanding, a liberal conception of morality. And if we share that morality, when then we're having a conversation. But Adam, I don't have a liberal conception of morality. I have like an ancient Orthodox Jewish one. Like which, we is the or, which is arguably <laughs> the origins. Tomer Persico will say this is the... And He's Tom totally Holland, wrong. The, like that's <laughs> totally No Orthodox person would agree with that. But I mean, I feel like when my my interpretation of Adam here when he's saying liberal order is is maybe shorthand for, for pluralism and human rights and dignity, right? It's like, as long as you believe in the value of human life and that two two humans have a right to coexist amongst each other as long as their rights don't infringe upon the other then you know that that for me I think is what what I'm interpreting when Adam says liberal world order like that's the fundamental uh baseline necessary for continued dialogue if I'm interpreting Adam you right I'll, I'll I'll take it. I still think that the uh, I think that <laughs> which I assume Bacha agrees with. I, no, no, I mean, no, no. Um, I think no. I think she doesn't acknowledge how much she agrees with it because I think <laughs> the Jewish perception of life aligns very neatly and has evolved alongside the the more recent development of the idea of liberalism. I don't I don't believe in the in the simplified view of Judeo Christian values. 
I don't I think that's that's kind of nonsensical and ahistorical. But I think the the current version of orthodoxy is very much 19th century, right? Like we have a view of religion and morality that has been evolved in diaspora and in relationship with other cultures, both Muslim and Christian primarily, and have evolved certain codes of de facto pluralism. Okay. Partly I, based I need to the, hear Baccia's response to this. <laughs> partly based on ancient, te- ancient texts, but also partly uh, in, in pragmatic relationship to being a minority and understanding the dynamic that you need in order to exist as a minority in a different, in a majority group. Well, the Torah is very pluralistic. It's non, you're like, philosophically, it is plural. I was just yeah, going to say also so intellectually, there was a pluralism in terms of the, your ability to interpret the text. No, I mean, the ancient text itself, there's room there for non-Jewish citizens who are not supposed to follow the in law in the sense, same in way. Yeah, it's very, very pluralistic. There's supposed yeah. to be many, many types of non-Jews who are supposed to follow their, you know, there's sort of seven laws, which are the most obvious things, like don't steal, don't kill, you know, um, don't eat from an animal that's still alive, kind of obvious stuff that like, you know, um, the best part about the Bible is that God himself is um, subservient to the law. And it's something I try to explain to Christians. They have a really hard time with this. They think that the defining feature of Judaism is monotheism, but it's actually not because monotheism is subservient to the law in Judaism. Right. We, um, we are a legalistic society. We are, yes, we are a, a disputatious legalistic, religious society. <laughs> and I, I, I just don't, I just don't think that the concept of human rights has any meaning because a right. You just described it. This a, was what a, you just described. A, a, this. a right is a is a, is a contract you make with um a, with a, a police force with state violence. It's a contract you make with. Um, the people who have the monopoly on power. And no, that's, not the idea of, that's not the idea of human rights. Human rights emerge from the fantasy of, of a certain set of inalienable rights, right? That's the, the idea that those rights are something that is fundamental to the virtue of being human, of being alive. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe and that. That's, but that's that, the, you don't believe it from the liberal perspective or from the Jewish perspective? Because it's definitely... I don't believe it from the Jewish perspective and I don't think that it's inherently objectively true. I think a right is a contract that the people who have the monopoly on state power make with the people who have, you know, the right to oust them from power. And so it makes sense to have a civil right because you have a government that is answerable to you. But because there is no human government, there is no kind of over, I don't believe that they're inalienable because we've, I mean, there's literally nothing another human can't really take but, from you. But, but, but if, so you take the, if you take the metaphor of right, literally, sure. But we're talking about a metaphor or uh, a fantasy about what it is that we value. We're asserting through this metaphor of human rights what it is that is worth defending at all costs. I mean, it's a liberal wish and list. Value. Yeah, so call it call it what it is. It's a liberal wish I know, list. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. You know my point about believing in hypocrisies, that hypocrisies reaffirm your own fantasies about what lines should not be crossed and what uh, um, um, versions of yourself you want to assert and validate. And I think that liberal wish list, if that's what you want to call them, is very much aligned in some places, not always, but very much aligned with some of the things in the Jewish wish list. I don't think anything is guaranteed by by either God or by nature or by society. Everything is just what we maintain for ourselves because of the source of belief that we have. And the Jewish texts 
at their best for me, give you that space to kind of nap, figure out and, in, and inquire what are those values that you want, that, that, that you think are worth protecting. And that's part of the disputations of the Talmud. And the liberal wish list is kind of like a more cheesy, tacky simplification of some of these conclusions and sometimes intentions with them, sure. But ultimately, they do come to an assertion of life, of your or of some sense of autonomy, not complete, but some sense of autonomy, which is then translated into the Anglo-Saxon world as, as freedom or liberty, and some sort, some sense of um, civic responsibility. And all of these things, and, and pluralism, in a sense of protecting the right for others to exist around you without, without feeling threatened by their disagreements. And all those things, you want to call them Jewish, you want to call them uh, liberal, you want to call them wishless, you want to call them rights, that, it doesn't matter. But it does show a shared foundation of what kind of vision of society we want to protect. I think that individual nations and their nation states and their governments should arrive at what works for them. And they should negotiate that through years and years of elections and, and law and sometimes war if, if need be. Um, I don't need to I don't need there to be some sort of abstract wish list that applies to all societies equally. I don't I don't think that that makes any sense. And I do think it's a fantasy. And I I don't feel like I traffic in fantasies at that level. I have plenty of my own religious fantasies to to, to occupy that part of my brain. <laughs> but I don't feel the need to to have something um, that I can hold up to people who are not American or not Jewish or even Jewish but non-Orthodox and say, oh, I'm like you. I don't feel the need for that. I don't feel... I. I don't know that it's important and I don't know that I, I think for the longest time, Israel has been a little maybe too worried about what the rest of the world thinks about it. And I think that was the best part of the Abraham Accords was it really, to a certain degree, released Israel from that pressure because once you had billions of dollars of UAE, you know, bags of cash in the Israeli economy, it was never again going to be at the whims and mercies of um you know, Western, whatever, Western, exactly. Wish list. And just getting back to the, to the current situation, um, I, 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 I could be totally wrong about this, but to me, I think a lot of people are saying that um, Bibi Netanyahu is sort of like delaying the incursion, the ground incursion into Gaza because he's getting pressure from Biden. But I just don't think that that is likely. Uh, first of all, Bibi never wants to do a ground incursion into Gaza. And of course, this is a very different situation, but I think it's, it, it just the idea that America, that Bibi's little like lectures about international law, which were repeated in the most disgusting way by Obama today on Twitter, just the most disgusting. We could talk about it, but um, I just the idea that Israel is, is in, in the same way has to actually pay attention to that seems to me to be fantastical. Like it's a completely different world. Thanks to President Trump. Like we're seeing right now in real time, the failure of the language of human rights to guarantee Jews the right to self-defense and self-protection. And I don't think that that's an accident. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I, I want, so I want to hear your point about this because this is, this, is, this is actually, Vanessa said we'll get back to it and actually now is the time because this is exactly the, our core, I guess, moral disagreement about this, which is really interesting because I, I am not even convinced by what you're saying yet about, about how you judge things. Because how is empathy enough to understand, to be able to bridge a conversation with 
somebody who holds perspectives that are fundamentally in conflict with you, and I, and I mean conflict in the existential sense, if you don't think that you share some sort of worldview, because what, empathy, what does empathy mean at that point? Just empathy for you, for you specifically, Batya, or for me specifically, Adam? I don't, you, you introduced the word empathy. I don't, I didn't. No, no, I, 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 so my, my mistake. Um, I misunderstood. So on what, on, is it, but is it just a personal connection that allows for that bridge for you? Because for me, that personal connection would not be enough. If I don't feel like we have some shared grain or some overlap in the Venn diagram of our um, moral outlook of our, I don't know, I don't know how we can progress having this dialogue. Like to what end? If you believe in a death cult and in, in the extermination of people who are not either because you see them as the, the, the boot that's forever on your neck or because you see them as infidels. Um, well, let me be clear. I don't have anybody in my life. Who no, no, I know, I know, I know, I know. Horrified by the. I, 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 I didn't, I didn't, didn't think that for a second. Like, if, if but if, I have if, someone in my life who has deep connections to Hamas um, from through family. Okay. And I still, I love him. I don't know what to do with. That. I don't know what to. I can't like turn it off, and I don't think it would be good for me to. I don't think I should mourn the fact that I can't turn it off, and. I we I it's it's his his mourning over our dead. Okay, I'm just going to be perfectly honest. It it was much deeper than what I have been able to muster. For his and I am not proud of that, but it's that's I'm not going to lie. Um, so I'm the bad person. I am. That's not nothing to me. And I, you know, in the, in the competition there, he's winning. <laughs> no, but, but and, he's winning. Um, <laughs> but not, not, not to intellectualize this, but I mean, I am going to intellectualize this. But this, <laughs> but, th but this is my point. The point, the reason that he's winning, the reason that we want to be more like that, that despite our deep affiliations and despite our own people being subjected to tragedy, wanting to be able to have this, feel true willingness to show grief for the the pain of our contingent enemies which i'm separating from the journalistic enemies but the people who just <laughs> happen to be right now on the other side of the battlefield is because of a shared commitment to the value of life and that's what i mean and you want whatever name you want to give it that's not a that's not something that i think can be taken for granted. And this is the line that I draw. If you are somebody who has affiliations with Hamas, but recognizing, recognizes that what happened, what Hamas has uh, perpetrated, is an atrocity and a tragedy, and, and show grief, even, though, even if you don't feel it, but you feel that you're obligated to do that, that's the hypocrisy that I value. You're mastering your own sense of grievance in order to show respect to a higher value and that higher value is human life innocent human life and you make it and, and that is a noble stand 
no matter where you come from. I obviously believe in the value of human life. I mean, that's like the first thing you learn in the Torah is like that every man is created in God's image. My point, though. Well, I wouldn't call it a right because it's literally the easiest thing for someone to take away from you. So it's I wouldn't call it a right as a value of sure. sure. So ignore ignore me ignore me the stupid metaphor of rights that I have no respect for. I'm just using as Vanessa said. I'm using it as shorthand because it's okay. So, but my problem is is that. I do think it is an appalling moral equivalence to say that killing people the way Hamas did mm-hmm. and the collateral damage of the war of Israel trying to prevent Hamas from ever being able to do that again is a horrific moral equivalence, that it is tantamount to supporting Hamas's actions. I, okay, I agree. Um, and so I, that, that to me is a very troubling thing that I realized. Like back in 2014, I was the person saying, Look, Hamas lobs these rockets. They send everything they have and they kill maybe one or two, which is a tragedy. But then Israel retaliates and they kill a thousand, including 300 children. And that's just not acceptable. Like at some point, Israel has to say, you know, that was me in 2014. Like the response is too much because they are so in they're so their their rockets are so crappy and their ability to hurt Israel is so limited and weak. That was me. You know, and so I'm sitting here thinking to myself, like a lot of people would scream at me and call me like, you know, whatever, an anti-Semite, whatever. Israel has a right to defend itself. And I would say, nope, but the Iron Dome is the defense against these rockets. Like it does not really need to kill all these people, especially because it doesn't really do much. This happens every two or three years. That was me in 2014. And I'm sitting here asking myself, like, were Hamas Nazis then? And I was defending Nazis, but they were just like worse Nazis. Unsuccessful Nazis. Exactly. Unsuccessful Nazis. Or did something change on their end that made this... But either way, like at this point, I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like to call for a ceasefire is to endorse Hamas's actions and to say I'm okay with them happening again. And I do mourn their dead. I do mourn the children. I I do think that it's it's horrific because war is horrific. But I I still think Israel needs to do it. And I, you know, someone asked me recently, a friend. He said, "How many?" Um, how many civilian casualties, how much collateral damage will be too much for you that you'll say Israel needs to to stop? And I don't know the answer to that. I know we certainly have not reached it. Um, Plus, of course, all of the stupid hypocrisy, like, oh, how are you going to get a million people to move in 24 hours? Well, it turns out 750,000 were able to, right? Like all of the, um, you know, of course, it's complicated. Probably could have been more if Hamas didn't try to stop them. Of course. It's it's, It's complicated by the question of the hostages, my God, like who someone has to make that choice, right? About like, I mean, my God, right? But I, so clearly my commitment to human life is not absolute, right? Like, and I have to accept that. And I think that that means I'm not actually a liberal in that sense anymore, because I do think that at some point, like you can mourn the, the collateral damage and still think that the operation is not only morally justified, but morally necessary. And I think that's kind of where I'm at. Um, but I, it's, it's hard for me to hear myself saying this and because I'm so not used to having this particular point of view because, you know, if human life is precious, then human life is infinitely precious and no one is more innocent than anybody else. And yet I cannot arrive at any other conclusion than the one that I, I just did. I think this is, this is, yeah, this is part of the problem. I, I have no strong perspectives on military strategy. My feckless ranting on this is still deeply rooted in this life value, liberalism, in 
created by God's image, whatever metaphor you want. I like I I love and hate all of those metaphors because they're all they all have some beautiful historical context and they and they all are overused to the point of meaning too little. But whatever it is that we've almost come close to agreeing on, which I do think is a required shared value, does that preclude any kind of retaliation from Israel that can put civilian lives at risk? And I think this is where the difficult and honestly conversation that I'm totally ill-equipped to be having, but should be had between people like me with a little more knowledge or like you and Arash Azizi, because I don't think you need to completely avoid, ignore your life asserting morality in order to allow for war. I don't think the ultimate conclusion of liberalism is pacifism. Right. And certainly is not total submission. Right. Well, but that's what does that mean? That's Judaism. I I am pretty sure. I'm pretty (laughs) sure that when somebody comes to kill you, you have to kill them first. Mm-hmm. Like preempt them, preempt yeah, them from killing you. Jewish, but I'm pretty sure that within the liberal world order, the idea of self-defense, self-defense is not is not anathema. It's not it's not pacifism. It's not you. Liberalism does not, by definition, by make you a vegan. <laughs> you, you need to be like. But my my only admonition, my only concern in this, uh, is that if you completely abnegate any attempt to psychologically gesture towards protection of civilian life, then you have given up something fundamental about your own society. Then you have darkened yourself. And I, not, to, not to go all um, 2001 Bush years on you, but then the terrorists win. <laughs> Adam, I don't think you're a liberal. I think you're an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, I don't know if you want to respond to that, but I, I, lib- I think a liberal is an Orthodox Jew that doesn't keep the Sabbath. Interesting hot take. Okay, I do want to come back to the the struggle that Bach has been having and the question that it brings up, which is like, who am I talking to right now? Who am I supposed to be reaching? And I, I just witnessing from what's going on in my my own circles. What is what is the responsibility to try reach people? Who who is reachable? I guess we kind of had this conversation with Yasha Adam. It's like who is reachable right now, and is it worth trying to reach them? I think is another way of putting Bacha's conundrum. Um, and I I still maintain that it's worth trying to reach people, and people are reachable. Um, but I'm also not, you know, in the position of having to have done this 17,000 other times and to feel it <laughs> with such visceral, in such a visceral way. And I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that I feel like <sighs> you, you cannot wish for everyone to accelerate in their understanding um, at the same rate. And all we can do is keep trying to determine who's who's open to 
who's open genuinely to understand. And I, I hope that there's still people out there who are like that. And I assume there are. And there's people who are very confused right now who would like to have a conversation and feel like they can't touch this with a 12-foot pole because the minute you say anything, you're going to get a- attacked viscerally by both by whichever side you happen to be amongst. Great. And that's unlike, a problem. No, that's great. Because unlike the one of the many toxic, pernicious, nonsense beliefs of the left, silence is not violence. And you're allowed to not have an opinion about things. You're allowed to shut the fuck up. But if you're going to take your six-foot pole, however long it was, and five-foot pole, um, and wade into this conversation, either knowing nothing and finding yourself on the side of baby beheaders, or knowing a lot and finding yourself on the side of baby beheaders, you should be suffering the the onslaught of angry angry people this is you've you've earned it i don't i'm still i'm still very anti firings and things like that because i think that's that's just again that's unnes- that, that's stupid retali- retaliations but if you're going to bring your ignorance to bear publicly or if you're going to bring your cruelty and and apology for atrocities publicly I'm going to fight you and I'm not going to be kind and I'm not going to try to convince you that killing babies is a bad thing, whether or not they've been beheaded before or after. That's not, I have no respect for this perspective or for the perspective of, oh, it's the condition, it's the underlying conditions that have led them to behead babies. People have been victims throughout history without leading to them beheading babies. That is nonsense. That is the insanity, the lunacy that people on the left have bought into. There is no convincing people out of this lunacy. Batya? Um, <laughs> yes, although my husband recently re- reminded me that the Balkans happened just 30 years ago. Like He was saying to me, like, where do you get the arrogance to think that humanity had progressed beyond? Like, He's like, there's never been a war where women have not had their bellies cut open. Where did you get the arrogance to think we were past this as humans? Um, I think I, what I would say is um, it's very interesting. I think the people who um, I, who like uh, have the view that's represented in the media and on college campuses that like basically this savagery, like you cannot call it out because to call it out would be to exercise white privilege. And essentially you must be on the side of the powerless Palestinians, even the ones that are doing these heinous acts. I think that view is extremely marginal. It is way more marginal than it was in 2021. It was it's vastly more marginal than it was in 20 in 2014. Um, and there's just so many people right now who are in the midst of going through the transition I went through in 2019, which is realizing like, oh God, like the left really, really hates Jews. And then you go, well, if they they're wrong about Jews and they're wrong about Israel, like what's the what are the chances? that they're right about everything except kill the Jews, right? Like, what are the chances that they're like right about literally every other item and then accidentally wrong about this tiny thing? They're very low. The problem is it takes a very long time to get through that position. And so, you know, my DMs right now are full of people who called me racist in 2019 for pointing out anti-Semitism on the left, denounced me publicly in the most horrific way. People who are friends who just utterly, utterly just denounced me to get a, a retweet from Linda Sarsour, who are now saying, oh my God, there's like a real problem here. And it's like, you think, you know? But, but what, what, what percentage of these contrite DMs 
comes from Jewish people. Most, 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 most of yeah, them. Right. yeah, 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 right. But That's, I still, but, I still think it's, it's, it's. It, I'll tell you how you know. In 2021, the second the, the the war started, every stupid influencer and stupid, mindless, empty-headed, idiotic actor had stand with Palestine, whatever. This time, they all sat there waiting to see what Bella Hadid was going to say. God forbid she catch them not saying the right thing. But it took her a week to say something, and what she said was actually quite good. Um, she was, she was like mourning the victims, you know, and, and mentioned Hamas's terrorist attack. So, you, and you could see after that, like, they were like, oh God, like, oh, so I guess, is it more complicated this time? And they started coming out with their like stupid false equivalencies, but at least they weren't supporting it. And so you, you there, and there was, I think the silence really spoke volumes. People were terrified to say the wrong thing, which they've never been before is my point, right? This did not become the, you know, support, stand with Hamas did not become the next Black Lives Matter or stand with Ukraine, right? It's, it's now it's kind of maybe a little bit, but it's still nowhere near because we're still finding out about atrocities. It's just very, very different. And so I think the far left position is extremely marginal. The journalists doing it are, are simply be clowning themselves and showing themselves to be like the moral, like depravity that that it is. Um, and But the problem is this. So someone asked me, do you think you could be a bridge to those people? And I can't because it's like that scene in Monty Python when the guy says, I'd like to join your group. And they say, well, how much do you hate the Romans? And he says, a lot. And they go, right, you're in. And it's Trump. I mean, you have to say you hate Trump. But if you are a person like me whose hatred of Trump fell by the wayside because I realized they were wrong about everything and they were also wrong about that... Like, so Barry Weiss can play that role because she's one of the people who really hates Trump, right? Like, she's still a solid liberal, like Adam, solidly committed to this idea of hey, human I'm liberal, rights and I'm liberal European, European sense, not in the American <laughs> sense. And I'm just not there. Like, I just, I'm, and so I, so to me, it's like they're at the beginning of this journey, right? That I went through, for, you know, for five years or whatever, four years, however long it's been, right? Where, you know, I don't know what I am now, but it's a long journey because first you're like, oh God, they're just wrong about Jews. Maybe I could convince them about this. Um, and then you're like, oh, wow, no, maybe they're, I mean, the Greta Thunberg, thing was really big, right? Like, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> immediately she posts like, you know, stand with Gaza and immediately 15 million Jews probably went like, wow, is climate change a hoax? You know, <laughs> like the, if you're going to ask people to choose between like their humanity and some like Democratic Party platform, it's going to take them a while, but at some point they're going to start to think. And I think that, so I think this is a really big moment. Uh, Dom is laughing because he got. No, no, no. I was laughing because I was laughing <laughs> because it reminded me of the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the comment to Greta that somebody who said, who responded with a picture of her holding a sign, I stand with plastic. <laughs> <laughs> In response to Greta Thunberg's, uh, Thunberg's uh, po picture posing with a, I stand with Gaza. And a little, um, and a and little, little plushy Jewy, octopus. Jewy, a little Jewy octopus. Right. Uh, which is being currently very, very angry behind her. Which is currently <laughs> sitting on Adam's shoulder because he received a plush octopus for his birthday this it's, weekend. Uh, it's very a cute. Octopus. Although it's smiling and I believe hers was very angry. Oh, no, no, no. no. He's frowny. He's oh, frowny. He's frowning. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a little frowny um, face. Well, I know we know Bacha has to get going. Yes, but he has more more important duties. But thank you. This was really difficult and interesting, and I really appreciate it. You 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 are one of the you are wrong about half of what you said, but we'll have to get to it another time. 
I really <laughs> love having these arguments with you, Batya. And I, I, I'm saying this now, you know, because I text it to you often, but I, I wanted on the record to, that it's clear <laughs> that despite the, the, how heated this is, this is because how much I love and trust Batya to, to challenge me on these things. And sometimes, or I should say at some point in the future, maybe even change my mind about something. Um, <laughs> um, it's completely, completely mutual. Um, I'm so honored to have you as a friend. Um, it's so great to be here with you guys. And God What's bless. What's the scoreboard in terms of how many times we've changed each other? <laughs> I, 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 I got inflation. You got inflation. And you'll never let me live it down. On police, you're right. And on Trump, you're wrong. And... <laughs> And you, you will just never admit that I'm right about liberalism, but but it's but you know it deep down. You know it. I think you met me six months too late to convince me about that. No, I'm, I'm, I met you six six months too late for the words to carry. You see the, the trajectory of our lives. I've always hated the word liberalism because I hate, hate any kind of attempt to group values. I even hate the word values. I think there's it's such a cheap <laughs> word, but people have allowed themselves to become nihilistic because they have taken for granted so much of the beautiful world order that uh, the liberal century has created for them. And taking it for granted, they allow themselves to slip into nihilism, tribalism, and blood feuds okay. and at the expense of that beautiful world. Okay. And in fighting this, I need to reassert those words that I used to hate so much. I'm going to just give a little teaser to my book because it's actually relevant here. Okay. And you'll have me back on to talk about the book when it comes out. So the book is about whether um, working class Americans have a fair shot at the American dream. And what I did was for a year, I traveled around the country and did interviews with 50, 60, 70, I didn't count, like in, working class people across the country. And um, to get a sense of what their lives are like, what their struggles are like, whether they feel that they have a shot at the American dream. And then also we would talk about politics as well, because I thought it was interesting. And one of the things that I found was um, just incredible levels of tolerance from these people, like just deeply, deeply tolerant people. None of them would have called themselves a liberal or said that they believe in liberalism, but they were deeply committed to the idea that like everyone deserves to be treated with dignity. And I think that the they have become more tolerant as the country has become less liberal. Um, they're, a lot of their tolerance actually a lot of them very, very um, openly would say, I voted for Trump because he used pro-gay, you know? And the real question is, is which came first, right? Like, did they become pro-gay? Did they become pro-gay because Trump was pro-gay? Or did they really vote for him because they felt he was the first conservative pro-gay person? But I heard that a lot. And I, I heard from a lot of Christians who have a gay person in their life who they want to be treated with love and respect, and they would never, ever, ever vote for a Democrat. And I, it just, so to me, like what I saw was just so intention with this idea that some sort of like enlightenment, you know, I, ideal is the thing that brings tolerance. It was just much more like that the hard scrabble reality of life made them deeply tolerant for the struggles people go through and, and want to see people treated with dignity when they felt that they really struggled to get dignity. Um, so it just, I just, yeah, you know, food for thought for the next conversation. <laughs> well, just to respond. Just to I know what he's going to say. It's like, gays wouldn't part. have freedoms if it weren't for the liberal framework. It's the hard scrabble of life in a certain historical context. 
Of it course. did not come, it not oh, emerge out of nowhere. And also, it's not like the Enlightenment. That's why I don't care about the tans. It's not like the Enlightenment created something that is so that it's not, it's not it's nothing magical. It's nothing mystical. It's nothing about the European blood that created this magic. No, but it's a set of historical beliefs and a certain tradition of pluralism that has allowed people to become increasingly more tolerant and desire and, and see tolerance know. in itself as a virtue that is not obvious to be, uh, to continued. be continued uncertain <laughs> things thank you Bacha. thank you for coming on continues. thank you for listening to uncertain things we are at uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts follow us and share us with your friends and enemies and if you want to support us give us a five-star review on apple podcast until next time, stay sane.